when it comes to fear, what we're really fearful of, I'm not fearful of you or you or my boss or my wife. I'm more fearful of my self-judgment. That's what we're more, most fearful for. Welcome to 80-20 Endurance. That was some real hard truth from Jackson Yee, not the last you'll hear from him in this episode. I'm Hannah Hunstead. And I'm Matt Fitzgerald. And boy, Jackson Yee, he is a teacher, first and foremost. He is just brilliant with young people. He's a lifelong athlete and just kind of all-around fitness nut, I guess you could say. He is a trainer and coach now, and particularly focused on mental performance, which he has a real interest in and gift for. He's the author of a couple of books, most notably Suffer Better, which, man, I wish I'd come up with that title. But yeah, Jackson Yee, he's like, he's a quote in a minute. We could have put anything as our upfront uh, clip from him. I had many an option as I went through and edited this. Jackson Yee hit up your fan mail inbox, which I want to let the viewers know <laughs> that <laughs> Matt Fitzgerald has a folder in his email called fan mail. So because I need uh, it. <laughs> and that was his that was his reasoning when he said that. Um, I'm just one thing I do like about you and I promise we'll get back to Jackson. <laughs> but <laughs> one thing I appreciate about you is that We've had many conversations about narcissists and like <laughs> who isn't one and you agree with that and then you just own it um, <laughs> in the best way, wow. in the best way. Wow, that's touching. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you can tell, our relationship is blossoming as co-hosts and friends and colleagues. <laughs> Speaking of relationships blossoming, Jackson, yeah, you can make fun of like the, his like his man crush on moi. Uh, and my wife checked that with him. She's like, do you have a man crush on my husband? And he's like, yeah. Um, but Jackson is just like, I, I told him we're friends. It, it, like we, we met, we got a chance to meet up for coffee recently. And he's just a mensch. You know, like, I'm just so glad that the world has a Jackson Yee in it. I, I'm so drawn to people who are just authentically themselves. Um, and, and Jackson is, is just that. He's, just, he's full of life and he's comfortable in his own skin. And he has a lot to offer to endurance athletes because that's, that happens to be the thing he's most passionate about. And we're, we're singing his praises here. And I just have one more thing to add to that. But... I feel like I've been around a fair amount of really intense personalities in my life. And at this point, that kind of like turns me off a little bit because, again, as we've talked about, what is it? Screw loose yeah. shit together. Um, and a lot of these like, quote unquote hardo personalities lean more towards the screw loose <laughs> side, but they don't notice it. Uh -huh. Right. And so it's like you can't even you can't even reason with them because they're so like intense about whatever they're doing. Um, and so to be honest, I was a little nervous to have Jackson on the show and, and meet him and talk to him. Cause the guy wrote a book called suffer better. Like he's a loose you can't not be intense. Yes. Yeah. But he's super empathetic and self-aware and kind and loving and really just wants to help people live their best life. So. He, he's someone you would want to be your child's like third grade teacher, quite honestly. Like, yes. I mean, he, he's, I mean, well, he has a potty mouth, but I mean, he, 
I mean, he's very wholesome, honestly, in, in his way, despite the potty mouth. And he's, he's great <laughs> with young people and a loose cannon. Yes. Thank you for listening to the 8020 Endurance podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review and uh, a five-star rating. If, and we, we appreciate the honest feedback, too. So reach out to us. She's kidding. Um, she's, that's just find... a joke. Don't take that seriously. <laughs> you can find our information in the show notes. And I'd be happy to listen. If you if you email Matt with a criticism, I'm, I'm letting you know right now, we'll not go in the fan mail inbox. <laughs> I'm not sure where it'll end up, to be honest. But... Want to give a shout out to our presenting sponsor, Inside Tracker, as well. They are an all-encompassing product and really helped me figure out what I actually needed and what I didn't. The supplement vitamin world can be really confusing, and I'm confident knowing that what I am taking and the supplements that I now have in my daily life are actually helping me as an athlete. So to receive 25% off as a listener of this podcast, you can check out the link in our bio. Enjoy the episode. Jackson Yi, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that's 80% plant-based and 20% raw bear meat. How the hell are you? I'm doing great. How about you guys? We're doing all right. Well, I'll speak yeah. for myself. I'm doing all right. How about you, Hannah? <laughs> I, I would say I'm doing more than all right, actually, today. Today's a good one. I'll be the optimist. Yeah, all right. Me. All right for me is actually a great day. So, <laughs> That's you know, so I've true. lowered my standards. <laughs> well, Jackson, we'd love to focus on your book, Suffer Better, How to Raise Your Pain Tolerance and Develop Your Resilience for Training yeah. and Life. Can you just tell us a bit about the inspiration that you had to write that book? I mean, that's a that's a daunting task. So can you talk about that? Yes. I wrote that book because in my teenage life, when I was in college, I trained at the most famous gyms in the world. I trained at both Gold's Gym and World Gym in Southern California. And again, these are the two most famous gyms during the time. And I was constantly seeing like movie stars there, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, uh, Sylvester Stallone. But it wasn't the famous people that I was always in awe with. It was just the regular gym rats there. And what I caught from them is that their ability to tolerate pain and, and to uh, suffer better was just incredible. So I pretty much copied everything they did to raise my own tolerance, tolerance to bodybuild during that time. But something interesting happened to me by the time I got to my 40s. In the, within the 20 years that I was training there, I was doing great. But the last 10 years from my 30s to my 40s, I really started to suffer. I was uh, struggling big time to break into the film industry as a writer. And because of my inability to persevere, I started to fall apart. And by the time I got to my 40s, I was a full-blown alcoholic and I was terribly out of shape. But I did notice something too during that time is that a lot of the people that I admired the last 20 years at both these famous gyms, high majority of them also were struggling in life and let themselves go as well. So during this low point of my life, I, I started to make this connection that, um, that the world was not kind to weak people. And trust me, at that time in my 40s, I was as weak and as mentally weak as they come. But also, all the people that I admire for the last 20 years at the gym, a lot of them were just as insecure as I was. And even though we we're all trying to pack on muscle and get on the best body that we could, 
what we really needed was resilience skills. So during the time, uh, 20 years that I was at the gym, I would constantly hear stories about people who I thought were going to be rich and famous, and, uh, but all of a sudden, falling apart and never recover. That was like the common theme there. And it just was such a tragedy to me because these are some of the toughest people I've ever met. But they failed to take the lessons that they got from their training and their ability to tolerate pain and to, to uh, and to apply it to their personal life. And, um, and that became like an obsession for me for years. Um, but there was not a lot of information on this subject. So I constantly would search things out, but I couldn't find anything. But for years, what I did instead was focus on mental toughness. But, that, but what was always intriguing to me was how our personal life and our training would coincide and interact. Because a lot of people that I know, there are some of the, you know, some of the toughest athletes in the world, but they're not using what they're doing in their training and applying it to their personal life. And that's what I became so obsessed with. The reason we're talking to you, how this whole thing came about, was I, I received an email from you several weeks back, and yeah. you gave me a heads up that, that you had written this book, and you mentioned that I would find my name in it if I, yeah. if I read it, and I, I did read it, and I totally understood why you were interested in my writing, because the stuff that you're interested in is, is exactly what I'm drawn to as well. I wrote a memoir called Life is a Marathon, where I talk about how I was a mental mm -hmm. weakling. I, I discovered sort of an inner cowardice through running that didn't sit well with me, and I decided I was going to work on it. And in the book, I talk about how my efforts to become tougher as an athlete paralleled my need to become a stronger person in life, particularly mm -hmm. after my, my wife was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And... And so there's that same concept of the work you do as an athlete being training for life. The unique contribution that your book makes is that you focus on that bridge and you make the point that it's not automatic. That no. you can't just like kill yourself in the gym and just say, okay, I'm going to be able to handle anything life throws at me. Um, yes. That's a great insight to me. So yes, go for it. Yeah, that was exactly the biggest problem. You know, even right now, you always see on Instagram, people are saying, oh, I'm training for life. I'm training to make myself better. We assume that these skills automatically transfer to our personal life. But unfortunately, they don't. I, I, you know, maybe for some people, but it didn't do for me. And it didn't, I didn't see it happening with a lot of um, the people that I trained with th those 20 years. Actually, it was 30 years when I was at these two famous gyms. We need to have specific skills in mind and intentions in order for, us, for what we're using in our training and apply it to our personal life. And also, on the flip side, we have to use what we do, the strength that we get in our personal life, and, and apply it to our training. It has to be intentional. We can't assume it's going to happen. And that's what I think most people do today. But when you ask them exactly how is your training affecting your life and making you better. A lot of them can't give you an answer. Sure, they'll say self-discipline, but you have to hone in on self-discipline. You can't assume that just because you're self-disciplined with what you do with your running and your training that you're going to be self-disciplined in life. That is not going to, that transition is not going to happen automatically. You have to hone in on that. Yeah, this is a really good point, actually. I'm thinking about when I graduated and I started applying to jobs and looking around in the career space. And on my resume, I had 
captain of a Division One ACC swim team. And, like, almost every interview, someone brought that up, and they were like, wow, what a good accolade, you know, this Mm -hmm. probably transitions into your life. And while I think, yes, there are pieces that do, it's so easy to just look at someone and say, oh, they're an athlete, like, they'll get the job done. Matt, you and I have kind of had this conversation off the mic, too, that stereotype of being an athlete and, and being a high caliber athlete, even more so, like that puts a lot of pressure on you in a lot of, a lot of cases. It's it's not the case that these people have their lives together outside of the pool, outside of the track, whatever it may be. And that stuff takes a lot, a lot of work. But why do you think that people just assume that these athletes kind of have their shit together in their, in their personal life as well? Why do you think that's such a stereotype? Because they spend so much time doing their sport that it's like that's a whole nother piece of work, right? Is there is there self? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, just but because it's somebody, just an, yeah. it's just an assumption. It is an assumption. Just because we see somebody tough on the field, we automatically just assume that they're going to be tough in their regular life. And in a lot of cases, that is mm-hmm. probably true, but not always. This is why you see a lot of athletes struggling uh, with alcoholism and drugs and just mental um, health. Mental health. I think the main problem is that for a lot of athletes, they base their self-esteem on wins and losses. And even though they for may sure. be you know, on that high when you're doing well in your sporting field, whatever you're doing, but wins and losses is a shitty way to judge yourself. I think we need to have a better evaluation about what makes us successful in life. Uh, I want to give you th- toss a, a compliment at you for, for your voice in the book because... That email I got from you, I, I get a lot of those. I always try to encourage people and say yes. They want me to consider writing a cover blurb or yours was already done. So the yes was, I'll, I'll, I'll consider reading it. And I love the title, you know, Suffer Better. I mean, that gets your attention. But then when I read it, I'm like, I like this guy's voice. I get it that you spent uh, a long time in, in Hollywood trying to make it as a writer because you're good. Uh, oh, thank you very so much. I, I didn't want to... I didn't want to let this interview pass without giving a sample of your prose to the people listening. So I'm just going to I'm just going to pull one out and read it and then I'll turn it into a question for you. Let's see. here. Okay. Having a low threshold for difficulties has made you very incapable and useless. If you continue to lounge around in your comfort zone, you will soon be irrelevant. Unfortunately, that may already be the case. I laughed out loud when I read that. I, I laughed a lot while I was reading the book. There's another one. I didn't write it down to read to people, but um, there's another one I laughed out loud at. You said, like, this isn't a feel-good book. In fact, it's probably a feel-bad book. <laughs> but this is part of the reason I think you and I could you and I could hang out because I really like your voice, and it's very tough love, but it, it reinforces the message. Like, you're giving people the straight dope, and, and your style matches the substance so tell me a bit about that though because it's risky because you could you could scare people away you could turn them off and you know were you very conscious of of that or can you just not help yourself i just can't help myself i have a big mouth and i have to say what (laughs) i have to say and to be honest this was my third book and my, my reader said this is actually the kindest voice that i had in the other books that i wrote the two other books i was i guess a lot harsher 
but that's just what comes out of me, especially when I write it. It's, it's my alter You've toned it down. So what I just I read was down, the toned down. Well. That's the, the nicer Jackson. version. That's the nicer <laughs> version of Jackson. But I remember actually writing that part because um, it was during the pandemic. And everybody was around me with whining and complaining about how, oh, this, this is terrible and I'm getting worse. And yeah, the pandemic was awful. Yes, it was terrible. But you know what? That's no excuse for you to sit on your lazy ass and just watch Netflix every day. You got to get out <laughs> and do something. And I was really getting frustrated at that time because as a trainer, that was the biggest excuse that I had. And also, I was teaching at the time with kids. And I just noticed how so many people were falling apart and uh, lacking resilience in life. And it, it started to worry me and actually frightened me because in, in terms of our evolutions as human beings, we were built on strength, on challenges. But with the epidemic coming up, it gave an excuse for people to be weak. And I started to wonder what's gonna happen to our world in the next generation. It seems like every generation is getting more fragile than the previous one. And, you know, what's frightening is the studies have shown even the testosterone levels for boys now are dropping. Boys now are less of a man, man, man than their dads were and than their <laughs> grandfather. That's how bad it's beginning. Oh, so, no. Uh, this does yeah, not bode so. well for me in the dating world. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's when I wrote that. And, uh, and to be honest, you know, as horrible as the pandemic is, it didn't frighten me as much as uh, a pandemic of, you know, people being fearful in life. Only because I used to be a, a lifelong former coward and I used to let my fears dominate me. But I knew that look when I started to see talking to people during the pandemic. They had that same look of apprehension and hesitation that I had for years, for years, until I got to find my courage by breaking through pain. But that's when I wrote that comment that down the line, who knows what could happen if we all just remain snowflakes and weak and, and avoid painful challenges in life. And you mentioned in, in the beginning of the interview that you were age 40, what was it? When, when you kind of like had this breaking point? Yes. And you were looking, is that right? And you were looking yes. around the gym and, and you noticed people similar age at this breaking point as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's like a trend with that sort of like quote unquote midlife crises? Do you think people in their 20s and 30s have more gumption or whatever it is? Or do you think it's no. just generation Absolutely and, not. and it can hit no. anyone whenever? I think the, the biggest problem is that we all just lack resilient skills. You know, nobody taught me how to be tough. I didn't get a manual. I mean, my parents, you know, I was the only son of a Chinese immigrant families. So if you know anything about the Chinese culture, you know, they spoiled their only son. That was me. So I grew up extremely coddled and spoiled. I just think we just lack those resilient skills. And I think we need that more than anything else. As a school teacher, this is what was so much interesting to me is that resilience is something that's innate with all of us. But we just don't know how to get that out, especially with kids and adults. I'll give you an example of uh, what I'm talking about. Last year during the pandemic, uh, my principal asked me to do the morning meeting, something very motivational, because I was known for that with, with the school I was working at. So Gosh, I, wanted I, I wish I could have morning meetings from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Can we make that happen? <laughs> I'll promise not to, if we, for the morning meetings with you guys, I won't be as harsh, right? 
So in these morning meetings. Oh with no, the kids, I want that. Oh, you want that? Okay. <laughs> All right. So with these morning meetings with the kids, this is from kindergarten to fifth grade. My idea was to teach resilience, to have a message of resilience skills. So I wanted just to plant the seed because I knew I couldn't teach these kids. Well, at least I thought a whole you know year of resilience. I thought I'll do something simple like never giving up. So with every uh, message that I had, that was the theme was never giving up, never giving up. And I would wear like costumes like Captain America and even sometimes Wonder Woman. I would always <laughs> talk about that was the greatest superhero uh, trait of all is to never give up. And again, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, ah, you know, these kids, yeah, they're not going to get it. To my surprise, walking down the hall, Mr. E, I'm never going to give up. Mr. E, I'm never going to give up in the middle of the classroom. <laughs> Mr. E, I'm never, ever going to get up. They got this. So what that suggested to me was that resilience and the ability to persevere is innate with little kids. I'm talking about kindergarten, third, fourth, and fifth. They all got it. They all completely got it. And then I started to transfer this never give attitude in the personal life. And of course, the kids love to play. They don't even do sports, Fortnite. So I started to say, do you give up in Fortnite? No, no, never. So they were using what they were doing in their personal life at home and with that school. And I was actually, guys, I was quite shocked about how uh, the kids got it. It really told me that we have to hone into this. We have to teach it. It has to be part of the curriculum. For these kids, um, so it's kind of like that great saying that we teach what we need to learn. And I'm constantly, you know, deep down in my heart, I still feel like, you know, I'm a weak individual. So I'm constantly teaching myself this by teaching kids. And it was like that great comment that I've never heard before from that I got from your book from Tony Morrison, that the purpose of releasing somebody's uh, Freedom, yeah, freedom, 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 yeah, freedom is so you can free other people, and that's what I was doing with the kids, um, teaching them that, is to free, get them away from their fears of giving up. Backing up to the the point you made earlier about wins and losses being a terrible way to measure success, yes. I, I totally agree. In my own experience, one of the keys to get people on board with getting serious about becoming more resilient is to see toughness as an end in itself. You know, so many people, they feel like, like suffering is something they have to put up with in order to win. And what I did for myself and what I try to help other athletes do is say, no, the purpose of suffering is to get better at, at yes. suffering. And if you, start, if you make that transition, like it's not masochism, it sounds very close to it. Like, oh, I just love pain. No, like being good at this stuff can be a form of winning. It's tricky. If you always go into a competition, like hoping to win and sort of hoping you don't have to suffer too much to win, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. But when yes, you can get to the great. point where you're like, like, I actually want to go into this competition and prove that I'm tougher than anyone else in it. And then winning becomes natural. It just flows out of proving mm -hmm. you're, you're the toughest or, pr mm -hmm. or, or not even that, just being tougher than you've been before yourself. Mm -hmm. So that seems like another great insight for me in the book. But in your work with, with athletes, is, you, know, is that, you talked about what you did with the kids to get it to click. But is that, is that something you also do? Just getting people to say, forget about winning and losing. Let's, let's focus on the process of yes, becoming, exactly. tougher, becoming more resilient, developing a taste for suffering. Yes. And your book and my book, we both talk about acceptance and commitment theory. This philosophy... Uh, of, of psychotherapy has completely changed the way I look at suffering 
and, and, a, and a different evaluation system in order for me to suffer better in life. One of the powers of acceptance and commitment theory is that you base your life not on your wins and losses, but on living to your values. That's more important. I grew up in the early 70s with a self-esteem model with a complete failure. It was, everything was based on that. But acceptance and commitment taught me to value my, myself differently on the values that I have. And this is what I teach to my clients, and this is what creates more resilience. I'll give you a, a great example of what I'm talking about. One of my top values is, of course, mental toughness and courage. A while back, I was attempting to do a, a 450 deadlift, and I completely failed at it. In the past, I would you know, call myself all sorts of bad things. You know, you're a loser, you're weak, you're an idiot. But I don't value myself anymore on just slowly wins and losses. Yes, it's nice if it happens, but I value, I judge myself on my values. Was I courageous during that lift? Yeah, I was brave as fuck in that. Was I tough? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, even though I failed, I still gave it all I get. Did I learn something? Yes, I learned a lot about the technique and who I was. So I felt fine with it. It didn't bother me as much. It still, you know, I, I didn't like not making that lift. But by being, showing myself more compassion, but by living to my values, you know, it created more resilience to me. Instead of like being down on myself after, which I normally would have done in the past. But now I just saw it as a process. And I still saw it as a win because I was living to my values. And that's what I try to teach most of my clients in terms of resilience. You can't just, you know, you can't evaluate yourself as an athlete on your wins and losses because you just put too much pressure on yourself. And, and it's really impractical to think that's the way to judge yourself. It's a shitty way to evaluate yourself. We have to come up with a better system. And with acceptance and commitment theory, learning to use my values and what I stand for and living up to that, that is a much more effective way. So this this brings up a, a thought that I actually had this morning, randomly enough. But my generation is seemingly like very obsessed with self-care. And oh. self-care can mean so many different things to so many different people. Sure. And in my my opinion, it's used as an excuse a lot. Like, oh, you know, I didn't do my workout today because I was tired and but like that's a self-care moment for me when can you actually be compassionate with yourself like you were just talking about when you need to be like what's that line look like for you and follow-up question for that too is are you only compassionate with yourself when you like completely empty your tank every single time because it sounds like when you were doing that lift like that was that was all you could give you know you gave it your all but what about times when you maybe didn't give it your all like how do you respond to that yeah or do you a, just give it your all all the time <laughs> no I, I i practice the 80 20 rule you know, like you guys so yeah there's a, there's a good lot plug, of good plug uh, yeah thank you very much um yeah there's a there, that question has a lot of uh, layers and uh, if i don't answer them all please repeat them back to me because there's a lot of things i want to talk <laughs> about there what i consider a superhuman skill is being honest with yourself because we are not honest with yourself. And this is one of the things that you have to have a skill on. So if there's a time in my life where I don't want to train, I was like, oh, no, I, I need to take the day off because above, you know, for self-care. Now, if I'm really tired mm -hmm. and exhausted and I have, have an injury, that's great. But we know, shit, the mind is the biggest asshole and the liar in your life. And part <laughs> of the skill of being mentally tough and resilient 
is that you got to be able to decide when your mind is lying to you. It's trying to catch you in and get you caught in that. It's not easy to do. It takes a while, but it comes down to yeah. you have to be able to be honest with yourself in the way you're assessing. Because let's face it, the one thing we do not want to be good at in life is to making excuses. And, and unfortunately, in your generation, it's a bunch of snowflakes, and here comes the harsh self, and excuse makers. I hear it all the time, all the time. Uh, but for me, self-compassion is very, very important, only because for the last, like, 10 years, I was all about mental toughness. I'm gonna tough this out. I'm gonna suffer better in life. But what happened by just by focusing just on those characteristics, I was missing something. I was missing something else. And when I learned how to be self-compassionate, how to be soft, and how to be more loving, man, I used to think that would weaken me. No, it didn't. It actually opened up and broadened my resources in life. So not only was I tough, but I also could be loved towards you know the kids that I work with and be compassionate towards them and to my wife. And that made me more resilient, more than anything else, because by being soft and being hard at the same time, I had different resources depending on the situation that I was in. And to uh, answer your question about being self-compassionate toward myself, it's hard for me because I am hard on myself. And it's like in your book, you talk about a sweet disgust where we get angry Getting at ourselves. Yeah, fed up. I do that yes. a lot. And, and for somebody like me, who was a coward and somebody who ran from fear and was mentally weak, when I catch myself running away from something, when I find myself running and, and, and going back to those cowardly habits, I do have sweet disgust in myself. And I do get hard and it forces me to do things. Now, that might not work for the average person, but I can't afford to backtrack. I can't afford to start running and being uh, a coward again. I can't. As an alcoholic myself, one drink could set me back. One action where I don't confront my, uh, my fears can set me back. And there's like the saying that we have in AA that no matter how far you're going, you still have one foot in your grave. And, and that's why I'm, I'm so vigilant about when I, I, I catch myself running away. But at the same time, this is where the honesty and, and being able to assess yourself comes important. I have a lot of injuries. I'll be 58 this year, and I, I have to be able to pull back, and I have to be nicer to myself when things like that happen. Because when it comes to fear, what we're really fearful of, I'm not fearful of you or you or my boss or my wife. I'm more fearful of my self-judgment. That's what we're more, most fearful for. And that's why acceptance and commitment theory was so crucial in terms of my ability to find resilience because now I realize that my self-judgment is normal. You know, I used to think I was, you know, I was a strange and crazy person, but we all have self-judgment. And that's what acceptance and commitment was able to do for me. It was enabled me to teach me that my mind was very normal and how harsh it is and also to not look at those harsh judgments as commands or truth. Because we tend to uh, get confused with our thoughts. We think our thoughts are 100% accurate, it's a reflection of how we are, and uh, it's a reflection of how other people uh, see us. No, not at all. Thoughts are just thoughts and associations. And even though I still have all these mean thoughts to myself when I'm harsh, I've learned pretty much <laughs> to distance himself. They're still there. They're never going to go away. I'm, you know how many times I heard, you're a loser today, right? I've probably heard about 50 times. 
Probably heard. I hear it all the time, but I just don't believe it as much. I know when I say, now when my, my self-talk is telling me, yeah, Jackson, you're a loser. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. And, and I, I go on. And that's my self-compassion, is to be a little bit more understanding of my crazy mind. And it's probably the same as your mind, Hannah, and your mind, Matt. It's the same thing. Our mind works the same way. One of the other things I really related to in reading your book, I think people have a tendency to, when they're reading something that gives them a different perspective, they, they don't actually read what's in front of them. They read the next most familiar thing. And, uh -huh. and so they kind of miss the shades of gray. Uh -huh. And I feared for you when I re read your book because you do come on strong. Uh -huh. And you know, I imagine other readers perhaps missing some of the nuance and, uh -huh. and the shades of gray. And you're not like just a no pain, no gain guy. You talk about, we haven't even mentioned this yet, but you talk about 10 specific skills. Earlier, we, we had that concept of the bridge, like the work you do in the, in the, in the gym or in, in training to become mentally tougher. Like the only way that's going to translate into your life generally is if you build a bridge that mm -hmm. moves those skills from one domain to another. And for you, there are 10 of them. There are 10 skills and they're not all like meathead, hardcore, knuckle dragger type of stuff. In fact, one of them, I've got them in front of me here. Uh, number nine is thinking of others. Yes. So that yes. sounds kind of touchy feely and, and new agey. Talk about that one just as an example of kind of the balance that, that is in the message of your book. Yeah. Thinking of others, this is when you're in the midst of an adversity and you think how your actions can have a positive or negative influence on the people in your life. When you connect, to others and think about them, especially the people that you love, you raise your threshold to pain big time. In other words, it's hard to give up when you know that people that you love are dependent on you. When I first did the research for this book, this concept actually surprised me the most because I'll be honest with you, I used to think that love was a hindrance, that it would weaken you and soften you up. But doing this research, I was completely wrong. In fact, if you want to be a badass warrior, you got to have love at your side. you got to have love in the center of your heart. In a lot of ways, the Beatles and those damn poets are right because love is all you need. No organization exemplifies this more than our, those brave brothers and sisters we have in the military and law enforcement. Now, it is very common for soldiers and police officers to say they're willing to take a bullet for their partners. And if you ask these same police officers and uh, soldiers what you're most afraid of, they're not going to say most likely, oh, I'm afraid of dying. What they're going to say instead is, I'm afraid of letting my teammates and my partners down. I mean, to me, that is the greatest sign of love. When you think of other people that you love, it just pushes you to do incredible things and, again, to tolerate more pain. I'll give you an example of how um, thinking of others and love really helped me overcome my worst adversity. It was during a time when I was embarrassing. I was having major issues with the IRS, and the whole situation was so emotionally draining and financially draining. It just bankrupted me and my, my girlfriend at the time. And we, many times during this crisis I was having with the IRS, we were completely broke and starving. And I remember this one moment where we had no food and Diane was at the kitchen table and she was counting her pennies and nickels and just stacking them up just to, you know, potentially feed both of us. And just seeing that, it's just, 
I vowed to myself after that moment that I was going to stop feeling sorry for myself, that I was going to get off my lazy ass and do whatever I can to help that woman that I was loving instead of having her count her damn pennies. So during the problems that I would have with the IRS and I wanted to give up, that image of Diane stacking her pennies up always, always energized me. And even now, just thinking about it still enrages me at, 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 at all the pain that I caused her. But that image itself, that love I had for her, that I needed to take care of her, it just drove me completely. And it's a great example of how when you think of people that you love, not only can help you get past your worst adversities, but it can make you a better loving human being and husband, like what it did for me. Yeah, it right. sounds like uh, a lot of empathy and just thought about how how other people, you know, how they live their lives or how they think. And, and that kind of in turn is your own self-awareness, right, of taking the the second to think about other people in that moment. Yeah, and you know what surprised me about the most? You know, in another organization that does this very well, which shocked me, are Navy SEALs. That's the, they hold that love that they have for your, your other brothers that you have to do it for them. And I was actually quite shocked when I heard that and read studies about how, you know, they're constantly thinking. Again, they don't want to let their teammates down. Their whole drive, again, you know, they're willing to die for their fellow teammates. You know, that's not love. I don't know what love is. And these are the toughest men in the world. And that's what mm -hmm. really shocked me more than anything else. How about in your role as a, as a coach and trainer? I would think that maybe some of the, the, the same magic is at work there where, just speaking for myself, like I, I, I feel kind of like a responsibility to model the behavior mm -hmm. I'm trying to instill yes. In, in, yes. in others, and it, and it becomes bigger than me. You, you don't just write books, you work one-on-one -on -one with yes. people. Um, yes. And I imagine that it's a two-way street, that it's, uh, oh, you get I have as a lot to, yeah. out of it as you give. I have <laughs> a lot to say about this, because, you know, as a person with a lot of fears, you want to know what my biggest fear now is being a hypocrite. Yes. I fear that yes. more than yeah. anything. That drives me. It drives me crazy because I know a lot of trainers, they don't practice what they preach. I remember a couple of years ago, I, I, I knew this one trainer that was having his clients doing all these, this crazy jumping stuff. And I asked him, do you do that kind of stuff? He goes, hell no, I don't do this, but they don't know that. And that moment, I did not want to be like that. So this is the, one of the reasons why everything I teach, I have to do myself. All the workouts that I give, I do myself as well. And also, when I talk to uh, my clients about resilience issues or problems that they have, I go through the same moments. I don't know if I'm doing it unconsciously or that I'm trying to understand what they're doing, empathizing. I don't know. But a lot of the issues that my clients have, I, it's like the mirror effect. I go through a similar version of that. Um, I'm not complaining about it because I want to understand and get into the mindset that my clients are going through and it, it, it you know and again it's a two-way street i tell this to my clients all the time we're both going to make each other better what you learn from me i'm going to learn from you you know it's never ever going to be a situation where i'm the boss and i'm the instructor again my fear of being a hypocrite that is what frightens me every day and i don't want to be you know have the imposter syndrome you know whatever i teach I have to go. I have to go through that, and or I've been through that. 
So when you work with people one-on-one, are these people that have kind of like hit rock bottom and they've had this big life event that they need to come out of? Or do you work with people that maybe just deal with problems like not having a consistent work ethic or um, maybe taking like that self-care step (laughs) too far? So something that's not going to maybe kill them, but something that just is kind of an annoyance to them in their life. To answer that question, probably all three of them. I, I work with all sorts of different people. I don't advertise or anything. I, I work out of uh, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So my big thing with the people I work with is for people that are having issues with courage and mental toughness. The biggest problem that I see with pretty much with myself and everybody else is avoidance. Avoidance will fuck you up more than anything else in the world. And I'm not talking about big things that you're procrastinating, simple things that you do, it tends to add up. And most of the people that I work with, they have avoidance issues. They run from their fears. And that's what I was for, you know, pretty much all my life. I was a big time runner. And one of the things I do with these people is to get them to confront what they're doing, no matter how difficult it is. One of the the things that I believe in is that in order to change a habit, because that's basically a bad habit, is running away. So what I do with a lot of my right. clients is that for 66 days, that's what the science is just, for 66 days in order to, com- to get rid of a bad habit and convert into a new one, it takes 66 days for a new behavior to happen. So what I do with a lot of my cl- clients is that we do a, a, a program called the no avoidance uh, game where basically if what's in front of you is not going to get you in jail, it's not going to come off creepy, it's not going to get you in trouble, you must take the action. You've got to take the action and you have to do it. And by doing so, you learn to validate uh, yourself by finding your, your courage. But more than anything, it just teaches you that our fears aren't really that bad. What makes our fears bad is running away from it. But I always tell everybody, if you want your fears to listen, you've got to move into it. And that's how you find your courage. And that's one of the biggest myths about courage that should, again, Nobody taught me how to be brave. Nobody taught me how to be resilient. I always thought that in order to be brave and courage, I have to be brave first and then take the action. Not true at all. From my experience, again, courage is an afterthought. You have to do things being afraid. There's nothing wrong with that. And by taking the action, that's how you find your courage. So a lot of the clients that I work with, we, I go through this, this program with them, and you know it's really life-changing for them to do it it's more than anything. Again, what's interesting, Matt and Hannah, again, it's not the big things that they're afraid of that they can't do usually. It's the tiny, small things. Some of the stuff that people can't do, you're mm-hmm. like thinking, geez, you can't do that? That's so simple. But that is what holds them back. Like I work with this one police officer, and he has a hard time saying hi to strangers. And I basically have him do that all the time. And every time he does it, he feels good about himself. But again, your heart and your soul and your mind, it doesn't differentiate what you're avoiding. It doesn't differentiate that you're avoiding doing something stupid like or something major like not paying your taxes. Avoidance is avoidance. And, um, and there's such thing as called the paradox of avoidance. The reason why we avoid, because let's face it, it feels good. We're not doing what we need to do. But that's where the problem is, and that's when it accumulates, and that's when it will screw you up. Like how it screwed me up for years, and is how it's affected a lot of the clients that I'm working with now. 
you talk a lot about courage when you're speaking about how you work with these clients. What's the difference between courage and self-confidence in your mind? They're both temporarily, let's put it that way. They're both temporarily. You know, we think courage and self-confidence is something that uh, it's going to stay with you forever. No, it doesn't. They're both very temporary. And also for both yeah. courage and self-confidence, nobody's born with it. You got to fucking earn it. You got to go get it. You can't, I mean, let's say you could take steroids to get muscles. You could take anti-anxiety pills to, to cure your anxiety, but you can't take anything for courage. You can't take a magic pill for courage or confidence. The only way to get those things is that you have to take actions and do things that you're afraid of, that you feel uncomfortable. And by doing that, that's how you establish your sense of courage and confidence. But then again, here's the paradox. It's not going to last. There's always going to be moments where you're going to feel fearful and a lack of courage. Like for me today, I may seem confident right now talking to you two, but an hour ago, I was like, oh, God, you know, but I'm taking the action. And and also, I'm learning that that that's very common to not have to have full of doubt and full of fear. But here's the thing again, you know, I'm now I'm able to distance myself from those thoughts. When my thoughts are telling me, oh, you're going to fail, you're going to lose her. I just say hi to it. Really? I just kind of like distance myself. You know, I kind of welcome it. But then what I do, I focus on the action. I focus on my values. I focus on doing something. There's a driving question that I have all my clients do. And that question is always, will taking this action help me find my courage? If the answer is yes, then you better do it. If the answer is no, then you don't have to. But that driving question, you know, you know, a lot of the clients, they mold it to fit their own needs. Will taking this action help me become the woman that I need to be? Will taking, well, doing this run will help me become the brave athlete I need to be? These questions that you're asking yourself, it's like holding the carrot in front of your head. But they're great because they confront you on what you want to be in life. I want to be a courageous person. Mm -hmm. So I have to take the action. I know what matters to me because of my values against. I know what I stand for. I know what kind of the person I want to be. So those are the questions that you must have to ask yourself. Instead of the negativity that's running around your mind, oh, you're going to fail at this. You're going to lose her. Counteract it. And this is one of the other things I've discovered in my research. Talking out loud. I'm a huge proponent of out loud instructional self-talk. I have my clients saying things out loud constantly. So this is different than the traditional positive self-talk. If endurance athletes weren't crazy enough. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can see you running and talking to yourself, but it works. There's something magical (laughs) that happens when we talk to ourselves. It just affects our behavior. Now, the problem with traditional positive self-talk, I love it. Don't get me wrong. Positive self-talk works. But the problem with positive self-talk is that we're prone to having an argument with ourselves. Correct? Let's face it. Your mind is the biggest asshole you know. Sooner or later, if you're in a crisis situation, if you're in a competition, it's going to go and work against you. It's going to give you a whole list of why you're going to fail. It's going to call you all sorts of mean and nasty things and tell you you're a failure. But out loud instructional self-talk counters this because, you know, when you talk to yourself out loud, you're basically talking to your subconscious. And let's face it, according to a lot of the studies, it's our subconscious that really controls our actions. 
But here's the real kicker of it all. You know, a lot of these people, again, I love positive self-talk, but the people that, that are proponents of just positive self-talk, they believe that we can control our thoughts. BS. You cannot control your thoughts. And we all know as soon as your inner bully intervenes, you can't stop all the BS that you say to yourself. You can't stop all the nasty things that your mind is saying about you to you. No control. But what you are in control of are your, the words that come out of your mouth. What you are in control of things that you say to yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to have a long and drawn out conversation where you're walking down the street <laughs> and you're talking like a crazy people. I do that. But uh, what I am advocating is that you say positive mantras to yourself out loud. And if you're in a, in, a, in a training situation, don't just keep that coaching kill stuck in your head. Say it out loud over and over again when you're doing your run. Say it out loud. There's just something so magical when you talk to yourself out loud and how it affects your behavior. Look at some of the, the best athletes at you know, this famous gym I went to. I used to see some of the best athletes, Kobe Bryant, who, oh my God, one of the nicest human beings in the world constantly talk to himself. Andre Agassi, you see him you know, playing. He's always yelling and talking to himself. Again, what we're doing is talking to our subconscious more than anything else. But you know, it, it prevents us from hearing that negativity that's in our voice. Remember that. You can't control your thoughts. And anybody, any of these positive self-talk gurus that tell you, yeah, oh, yeah, Hannah, Matt, you can control your thoughts. Bullshit. You can't. <laughs> Walk away from those idiots. Another one of the 10 mental skills that you talk about in your book that, that might uh, surprise people when they, they first arrive at that chapter is laughter. Um, oh, yeah. This is why you and I could, could hang out because for me, that, that's a major survival skill. My dad was just diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And what led up to the diagnosis was 36 hours from hell. He, he was not doing well. We didn't know what was going on. And it was this whole big ordeal. We came out the other side of it, and I, I dropped him off uh, at, at his apartment. I checked, are you okay? You can call me when you need me. And the last thing I said to him is, you know, Dad, we will get through this. And when I say we'll get through this, I mean this thing's going to kill you eventually. <laughs> and in the meantime, we'll get through it. People might be horrified by, by you said that to your dad? But, like, he found the humor of it. And it was like, it was this terrible low moment. Taking a chance by trying to throw a funny at him was just the thing. It was just ex set exactly the right tone, what, what's going to come ahead. So talk about that. You know, is that, is that the idea? Was I doing it right? You, know, you were doing it right. You get an A plus, okay? <laughs> yes. Uh, out of all the, uh, the coping skills in my book, laughter is the one that's most researched and studied. And the evidence is just woo, overwhelmingly positive that it works. On a physical level, when you give yourself a quick chuckle, your body releases endorphins. These, of course, are the pain-killing uh, hormones that flood your system and make you feel good. And on a psychological level, when you tell yourself a joke or something like that, it just has a way of just jolting you out of your bad mood that you're in, you know, get you to think clear, and hopefully finding a possible solution to your problems. Now, I want to make this clear, guys, that I am not suggesting you have to be the next Kevin Hart or that you have to tell knock-knock <laughs> jokes during your next crisis. But what I am suggesting to everybody is that everybody should give the power of laughter a chance because humor just has a way 
of giving you a fresh perspective of the dire situation that you're in instead of being blinded by your negativity. It's an interesting topic of optimism and positivity, but again, being self-aware. Matt, you wrote a blog post on this recently about being optimistic, but being very real about being optimistic. Um, And I, I asked a question to a lot of my friends that are athletes last year during COVID. What do you, what do you say to yourself when you're in a really hard workout or during a race? Like, what's your self-talk? Just because I was curious. And majority of people's answers were like, let's fucking go, Hannah. Like, you're better than this. It was all like negative thoughts and based, which was was totally different from my self-talk. And um, mine isn't overly positive. It's more like, okay, you know, you're doing this race. This is how you're feeling. It's like almost processing what's happening and trying to stay calm. But I was just shocked that people were so mean to themselves when they were trying to motivate themselves through something really physically challenging. Yes. <laughs> Did you see that in in the gym that you were in or with the people that you work with? And what are your thoughts about that and people's motivation through something really physically challenging i go through stages where i have very encouraging and positive sometimes i'm very mean to myself it gets my ass moving i use both of them i know when when i need to use that real hard cruel character in myself to say those things i know when to use and i know other times when my positive self-talk is very uh is nicer now here's the thing that i always tell people that's very important when you start to uh, transition what you learn in your training to your personal life. So I tell everybody all the time, listen to what you're saying to yourself and apply it to your regular life. It's usually the same thing. Mm-hmm. But again, what I do want to say is that you have to be honest with yourself. If I have a bad ankle I'm running, that's not a good thing if I know that it's going to cause right. an injury. So you have to have that superpower right, of being right, right. honest. And, and it's, it's about your assessment. But if I'm running and I'm trying to get out of it and becoming a damn weasel like I've done in the past many times, I catch myself. And that's where the sweet disgust, that term that you use in your book, Matt, mm-hmm. that's when it really motivates me. Because, again, for somebody like me and some of the clients I work with, we can't afford to have moments like this. We cannot afford that. It could just one slip it you know, could just pull us back completely. I mean, most likely it won't, but that's mm-hmm. the attitude that I have. I have to be vigilant because my lies, I will lie to myself every time when I'm doing something challenging. Even for this interview, I was looking forward to it, but I was lying to myself at the same time. And, oh, you know what? My internet's not going to work today. I, you know what? I might as well cancel. I mean, cause only because I know myself so <laughs> well now. I know the self. I, I know when it's coming. But again, the difference now from how I am now than before is that I just know that these lies and these negativities, my life is, my brain and my mind is basically trying to protect me. That's how we evolved as human beings. We have a strong negative confirmation bias. It's trying to protect me from, you know, flopping on this podcast. If I wanted to meet somebody, it'll tell me, mm-hmm. oh, that person doesn't want to meet me. What it's basically do is not trying to get you to not talk to that person, but it's trying to save you. And that's one of the techniques with, um, acceptance and commitment theory it's called just thank your mind so when it happens you know when my mind is saying all this negative stuff to me you know about quitting i just thank it so you know what thank you and i can handle it and you know 
it diffuses the whole part of that negativity. It's still there. It's never, ever going to go away. But I'm able to focus then on my values. And I ask myself that, again that question. Well, continuing this race help me find courage and mental toughness in my life? If the answer is yes, you damn right I'm going to take it. you damn right I'm going to keep running. The opposite of fear is freedom. I have a lot of freedom in my life now. And one of the reasons why I do is because one of the most important, important skills of mental toughness and resilience, you must have the ability to reframe any negative situation into a positive. And the amazing thing about this is that the more you do this, the more automatic it becomes. So eventually what you want in life is that when you think back to some of your past painful memories and you shift it to uh, positive moments, what you get is you get both the positivity and the negativity. And that is what this gratitude is all about. This is the problem with the positive movement. No, negativity is part of it. They come together, pain and joy, happiness and sadness. They're joined at the hip in order to be happy. For the athletes listening who haven't been scared off by your, your tough love uh, <laughs> and, and they're thinking, how do I get more Jackson Yee in my life? What's the answer to that question? How do, how do folks listening get more Jackson Yee? You could uh, email me at uh, um, sufferbetterwithjackson at gmail. I actually, uh, my wife created a, a link page and everything, but I'm really awful with technology. I'm probably like the only Asian that doesn't know how to use a cell phone or, or a laptop. I'm terrible <laughs> with this kind of stuff. But you can contact with me with my email. And, and uh, for your uh, listeners, please contact me and ask me any questions that you want to. I'd be glad to give you my perspective. Or if anything, I, at least you guys know I'm funny. So it will help at least check out that part. <laughs> well, we will put your email and that link also in the show notes for the listeners that want some more Jackson Yee. But thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you very much, guys. It was very fun. Whew. Well, I hope you let the honest words of Jackson Yee sink in. Maybe you jotted down some notes during that, um, but whatever it may be, we just hope you enjoyed this episode. We have a lot of really awesome guests coming up in the next few weeks that we're excited to share with you. So enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll chat next week. Bye. Bye.